Good morning, everyone. My joy and pleasure to worship with you this morning and to bring God's word to you this morning. I just want to extend a special welcome to a crew that's with us from Molotani Baptist. So Molotani Baptist, for those of you who, who uh, haven't heard of it, I think most of you probably have, but uh, Molotani Baptist is a sister church, um, part of the Solar Five uh, Association of Churches in Soweto. And um, uh, Bokang and Caesar were recently there. That's where they were members before they came here to join us. And so actually today we've got Nkuli, one of their elders, and his wife with us. And then we also have uh, some of Caesar's family with us, which is really special. So thank you so much, all of you, for coming. And uh, did I leave anyone out? Google, are you family or are you friend? Okay. Welcome to Google Letter 2. So, okay. Wonderful. And uh, nice to see some new faces here this morning as well. Special welcome to you. Thank you so much for coming. Okay. We are resuming our sermon series today in the Gospel of Mark. We took a break from that for a little while, and we are back in the Gospel of Mark today. And one of the major themes we've seen in this Gospel so far is that of Jesus's identity. Jesus's identity. This book keeps posing the question, who is this man? It starts off right in the very first verse with the author Mark's summary of who Jesus is. He tells us that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the true King, the perfect Son of God. And from that point on, rather than telling us himself who Jesus is, Mark instead shows us evidence of who Jesus is by showing us what he taught, what he did, and who others understand him to be. Some understanding him correctly, and others understanding him incorrectly. And then it's for us, the reader, to weigh this evidence, weigh this material, and come to our own conclusion. And we've seen from the prophecy, the prophecy that Mark presents to us from Isaiah and Malachi, that Jesus, according to that prophecy, is the promised coming king and God himself. We saw the testimony of the prophesied forerunner, John the Baptist, the one who would come and prepare the way of the Lord. His testimony was that Jesus is that Lord, the king he's been announcing, God himself. At Jesus' baptism, we saw God the Father affirm Jesus as his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. And we saw the Holy Spirit anoint Jesus for his work as the promised Messiah. We saw Jesus call people to repentance on the basis of the fact that the kingdom of God is here. And what, on what basis did he say that the kingdom of God was here? Because he is here. The king is here. We saw Jesus' authority to call disciples to follow him. We saw that Jesus taught God's word with a unique authority. We saw Jesus' absolute and complete authority over demonic beings. And we saw that even the demons gave testimony that Jesus 
is the Holy One of God. We saw Jesus' authority over sickness, His authority to make those who are ceremonially unclean, clean. We saw His authority to heal those with disabilities. And we saw Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Something only God Himself can do. And this collective testimony, it's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot. That you pile up all those things and we're not done. Mark continues. But that collective testimony is very compelling. This is no ordinary man. This is not even a special man. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, God Himself, the King of Kings. But not everyone is responding to Jesus positively. Not everyone is responding in faith. Not everyone is seeing him as who he is. Starting in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7, we start to see people critiquing and criticizing Jesus and his disciples for a variety of reasons. We see that the scribes are not happy with Jesus saying that he can forgive sins. They say he's blaspheming. We see the scribes of the Pharisees not happy with Jesus showing love and welcome to tax collectors and sinners, eating with them, spending time with them. Next week, we'll see people taking issue with what Jesus and his disciples do on the Sabbath. And in our text today, we see people who have a problem with the fact that Jesus' disciples do not fast like the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John. Mark 2 verse 18. Mark 2 verse 18 reads, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. This is a question, but it is a criticism as well. The disciples of the Pharisees fast, the disciples of John the Baptist fast. So Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? Now fasting is abstaining from eating for spiritual reasons. It's a simple uh, definition and we'll expand on it later. But for now, let's leave it at that. It's abstaining from eating for spiritual reasons. Now, this passage isn't very specific about who exactly raises this question and critique. This critique along the lines of, why, O religious leader, do your followers not do what all devout religious people do? Whether they're disciples of the Pharisees or they're disciples of John. People who are committed in their religion, they fast. Why not yours? Right? And remember now this is also following on the heels of Jesus spending time with unholy people, with sinners. The overall critique seems to be, okay, you're supposed to be a religious leader, but you're not very religious. You're not very holy. You're not very devout, not very committed. And whoever it is who asks this question... They ask it in reference, as we've said, to the religious conduct of two groups of people. The disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. 
And the Pharisees were known for strict keeping of the external requirements of God's law. And part of that commitment was seen in them adding a whole bunch of extra rules to God's law. They originally may have intended for these extra rules to help them keep God's law better, but they ended up becoming burdensome. Burdensome on people, weighty, draining, and resulted in an outward keeping of rules and regulations without engaging the heart. Their strict keeping of these rules often resulted in them missing the point. Missing the point. And it ended up promoting self-righteousness. That is a sense of being better than others because you're so religious, you're so moral, you're so holy. And a sense of being pleasing to God because of that same religiosity, because of that same morality, because of those same deeds and works that you do. Luke 18 verse 9 to 12 says this, speaking of the Pharisees, says, He also, he being Jesus, he, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Self-righteousness. Trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And treated others with contempt. Looked down their nose at others. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. God, I'm pleasing in your sight and I'm better than other people because I keep these rules so well. In the Old Testament, fasting was actually only commanded for one day of the calendar year. And that day was Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. A special, uh, uh, a special, a very special day on the Jewish calendar. Other than that, fasting was voluntary. And we do see fasting for a number of reasons in the Old Testament, but it was voluntary, not commanded. But the Pharisees went ahead and practiced uh, and added to that the practice of fasting twice a week, every week. And they felt very self-righteous about it. The other group we see here, the disciples of John the Baptist, would have fasted for very different reasons. As we will see more in a little bit, it seems that their understanding of fasting was closer to the heart of what fasting is really for. Remember that John the Baptist's ministry was a ministry of calling people to repentance from their sins in preparation and anticipation of the coming of the promised Messiah. Turn from your sin, honor and obey God, the King is coming, and you want to be ready for Him. And fasting would have tied well, in well with that heartbeat. Basically, the mindset would have been, we are abstaining from food because we recognize that the way we're living is not what it should be. It's not in accordance with what God calls us to. And we're sorrowful over our sin, and we long for change, and we are committed to change. 
And then further, we're abstaining from food because we see our need for the promised Messiah and we long for him to come. And we want our way of life to be pleasing to him when he does come. So, as I say, very likely, these two groups are fasting with with different motivations, very different motivations. But they are both fasting. And Jesus' disciples are not. And why? Why is it? How does Jesus respond? Jesus responds, Mark 2, verse 19. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. Jewish weddings of the time were a week long. Seven days full of celebration. Lots and lots of music and dancing and feasting. Lots of eating and eating good food. It would have been absurd and it would have been offensive for a guest to fast at a wedding. Jesus says here, he says, he is the bridegroom. He's the center of these celebrations. He's the one the guests are there to celebrate. And as long as he's there with them, how can you expect them to fast? It doesn't make any sense. And there's more to this metaphor. In the Old Testament, the metaphor of a bridegroom is applied in several places to God himself. So again, again we see the testimony from this gospel. Jesus is God himself. God is here. Emmanuel, God is with us. How can we fast when God is with us? What an amazing, amazing situation. God is with us. Jesus then goes on to give a couple more parables. Mark 2 verse 21. Jesus says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. And the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. The new can't be combined with the old. Now, this first parable Jesus gives you of of the cloth. Basically, clothing material... At that time, and certainly that's still true with some of our clothing materials, right? When you wash it, it shrinks. When you wash it, it shrinks. And so, you've got this old piece of clothing. It's already been washed many times. It's already shrunk. But there's a hole in it. And the way to fix that is not to get brand new material that hasn't shrunk yet and to cut a piece out and then patch it. 
Because as soon as you wash that, that new material is going to shrink. And it's going to pull away from the stitching and you're going to have a hole again. And as the passage says, perhaps even a worse hole than you had in the beginning. Nobody does this. It doesn't make sense. It won't work. The wineskins, what are we talking about there? Well, in those days, the way they would keep wine is they would, they would take the skin of a goat and they'd basically sew up the loose ends and then what, what would have originally been the neck of the goat would have then been the spout of, of, of a pouch and that, that spout would be where they, they, they pour out the wine and then what would have been the body of the goat uh, would be the area that would actually hold the wine. And when that goat skin was fresh, it was stretchable, very stretchable. And what would happen when new wine was put in there is that over the course of time as that wine fermented and all those scientific processes take place, gases are formed and whatnot, the wine expands and the gases expand. And the container that the wine's in has to be able to stretch and expand with it. And if you take an old goat skin, an old wine skin, that's already stretched to capacity. And over the course of time, it's lost its elasticity, its flexibility, its stretchiness. And it's become stiff and brittle. Now you go and try and put new wine in there, and that new wine is going to try and expand, and there's going to be no give. There's going to be no give to this old wineskin. And so the end result is that that wineskin would burst, and you'd lose all your wine, and now you've got a useless, broken wineskin. Nobody does this. It doesn't work. It can't be done. That is the point of both these parables. See, when people come to Jesus, their old way of life is incompatible with their new life. My friends, Jesus can't just be added to your old life. He can't just be tacked on. He isn't something you can just add on as a little small extra that doesn't change much. Right? My life's the same. I just now attend church sometimes on a Sunday. Nothing changes much. I just, you know, now would answer the question of what, what religion are you a little differently? No. He is your life. And that is because of who He is. Right? Here again, the implications of this question, who is this man? If he really is the Messiah, if he really is the true king, if he really is God, very God, that has massive implications for your life. He's not just an add-on. He's your Lord, your master, your everything. These people asking Jesus about why his disciples don't fast, they're only asking that question because they miss who he is. 
They expect the disciples to fast because they don't see who Jesus is. And therefore, they think that it would be quite fitting that the disciples simply confirm, conform themselves to their old traditions, to their old way of life. They don't understand why there should be such a change, such a transformation, such a radical new way of doing things. So Jesus turns from the very specific question about fasting and he speaks to the bigger picture. He's saying, look, something new and revolutionary is here. The times have changed. Things are not the way they used to be. And and the way things are now is not going to fit in nice and neatly with what you've always known. Expect that. Expect that things now are new. New. Think of the Pharisees. How does their approach to righteousness fit in with Jesus? Imagine being at this wedding, this time of absolute celebration, right? And for those who understand the gospel, we know this is a time of such celebration because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And I'm a sinner. And I'm celebrating because my Savior has come and He's saved me. And at this time of celebration, here you've got this Pharisee who's trying to pay for his entrance into the celebration. He's trying to do some work to earn his way in. Instead of celebrating the Savior, he's trying to pay his own way in. Instead of celebrating what Jesus has done for him, he's trying to earn his own salvation. And then, what else is he doing? He's doing all these religious things, drawing attention to himself. Right? We see that in, um, also in the Gospels where Jesus says, when you fast, don't do what these people do. Don't intentionally make yourself look gloomy Draw attention to yourself so that people will be impressed with how religious you are. How does that fit? There's a party celebrating the Savior. And you're there saying, hey everybody, look at me. Look how religious I am. Look how good I am at keeping these rules. Doesn't fit at all. The disciples of John, they're waiting and anticipating for something Good and right. But how crazy is it? The party's going on. Everybody's celebrating. And the disciples of John are still sitting there on the road looking. Where's the bridegroom? When's he coming? And the party's already happening behind them. They're missing what's happening. Jesus is already here. Join the celebration. Rejoice. Jesus did not come to just patch up our former way of lives. He came to bring something completely new. Which is not to say novel. Okay, It's not to say novel. It was promised. Right? Throughout our Old Testament. It was promised. So it's not novel. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It's the fulfillment. Right? It's the substance of Versus the shadow. 
followers of Jesus should be prepared for a new outlook, a completely new way of life. Every Christian is a new creation with new affections and a new allegiance. Our lives are new. We shouldn't be surprised, right? People's, we shouldn't be surprised <laughs> by how much our lives change. And we also shouldn't be surprised that if we get questions <laughs> along the lines of, why, why has your life changed so much, right? From those who don't believe, from those who don't understand, from those who don't get who Jesus is. Because it's not going to make sense to people how our entire allegiance, our entire passion and purpose in life can be so different. Someone might say, look, we, we all like to get together and go cycling or running or hiking on Sundays. and You always used to do that. Why do you have to go to church every Sunday now? We used to have so much fun skinnering and gossiping together. That's what we used to do. You know? Have you heard? Let me tell you about this. Right? That's what we used to enjoy to do. Now you keep stopping me. Why, why, why can't we do what we always used to do? Why can't we tell the sort of jokes we always used to tell? Why aren't you as driven in your career anymore? Don't you want to climb the ladder? And have more and more prestige and more and more money? Why didn't you take that job promotion? That's been your dream. What? You don't want to move there because you, you want to stay with a, a healthy local church. Okay, well that sounds crazy. I don't understand that. Our family is Catholic. You were christened as a baby. You were baptized as a baby. Now you've got a little baby. This is what our family does. It's time. Time to take your baby for baptism. No, no. It's not what we do anymore. The whole family participates in these ancestral practices. We always have. Why don't you? And so on and so forth, right? Our lives have changed. We have a new allegiance. Jesus is not simply an add-on. Now, if we think about all of this, does fasting fit into the Christian life? Does it? And if so, how? Well, it's important to realize, right? We... Right? Our situation now is not exactly what the disciples with Jesus had during that time. That was unique. It was special to be with Jesus while he was here in the flesh on earth. But we are living in a new era, an exciting era. Messiah has come. His kingdom is here, right? It's, it's begun. He's died on the cross. He's paid the penalty for our sins. 
He's risen from the dead. He's defeated death. He's advancing his gospel. He's building his church. There is a lot to celebrate. And my friends, there's a reason that the New Testament is so marked by joy. Joy. Christians have a lot to celebrate. Christians should be marked by joy. And yet, at the same time, our passage tells us this. The day will come when the disciples of Jesus will fast. Why? Because the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And a lot of people see this as a reference to Jesus' crucifixion. I think there is good reason to believe that. Um, that Jesus, the bridegroom is snatched away, taken away. Very suddenly, he's gone. But surely this applies to his ascension as well. Because Emmanuel is no longer here in the flesh. I don't want to take away from the wonder of the Holy Spirit being within us. We as a church are the temple of God. Our bodies even are spoken of and also in a sense as being the temple of God. The Holy Spirit is within us, with us. That's an incredible, incredible blessing. But Jesus isn't with us in the flesh like he was with the disciples in the flesh. The bridegroom is no longer with us. Now, a lot of what fasting is, a, a proper understanding of fasting, has to do with hunger. What I mean is, has to do with longing, right? With recognizing something's missing. Something that should be here is missing. Something's not right about how things are. We sorrow over things not being as they should be. We long for things to be as they should be. Now think about this with me, right? Why, why are some foods called comfort foods? Because eating good food feels good and it comforts us. And this, this is a gift from God. It's a good thing to be able to say to someone who's had a really rough week, let's go get some pizza. Let me get you some chocolate. Let's go get an ice cream. Let's go eat some bacon or some steak. Then you'll feel a lot better, right? Let's go, let's go feast. Let's go enjoy some good food. But sometimes, sometimes we should resist that urge to comfort ourselves. Because sometimes it's good and right to recognize the sorrow of a situation. To recognize how something is not as it should be. To grieve my sin, for example. Right? I've been irritable and losing my temper all week. And I've been seeing that and not feeling so great about it. Okay, well, don't go run and eat some ice cream and then just let that dull your senses and forget all about it. No, go talk to God about it. Go talk to God about it. Don't be comforted by ice cream. Be comforted by the gospel. 
Don't pretend that you're not a sinner by looking away from your sin. Look at your sin, see your sinfulness, and then embrace the fact that you have a wonderful Savior. A Savior who also promises to help you grow in Christ-likeness. To help you turn away from temptation and honor and obey Him. See, sometimes, right? Sometimes that feeling of sadness, sorrow, grief, it's appropriate and we need to try and embrace it. So, if that's one side of things, though, then there's also this biological reality. If I don't eat, okay, so the one side is, is comfort food can, can, can dull, my, dull my senses, can distract me, can take my thoughts off, off things. The other side is that if I don't eat, I feel hungry, right? I feel hungry. I feel a longing for food. And if I fast, I'm reminded regularly, and more and more so as the day moves on, that something is not right, so to speak, right? <laughs> Something's missing. I need some food. And that gives me the opportunity to remind myself, you may not feel a hunger, a longing for Jesus to return, for his presence, for his reign, his kingdom to, to, to come fully with no more sin, no more death, etc. To experience, right, the fullness of his kingdom. Remember we've talked about that whole dynamic of, of the kingdom has come already and yet not yet. There's all sorts of other aspects that will one day we're still waiting for. I want to long for that. I want to, I want to long for Jesus, to, to be in Jesus' presence and experiencing the fullness of his reign. Now I realize I might not feel that hunger. I might not feel a hunger for that like I feel a hunger for something to eat. But I should. I should. Okay? And my body here, by me going about, uh, uh, by me fasting, I'm giving, I'm giving myself an opportunity to be reminded by my body of the fact that there's something I should be longing for, something I should be feeling a need for. It's a practical, tangible, guaranteed reminder throughout the time of fasting to seek to renew my mind Think about eternity. Think about what matters most. And to pray and ask God, move my heart to long for His return. And even also for me to live a life more fully pleasing to Him. Okay. Now fasting should certainly not be an attempt to earn God's favor. Okay. It should not be anything along those lines. God, aren't you impressed with me? Don't you see that I'm righteous? Don't you see that I'm a good Christian? Fasting should not be about punishing yourself as if it's somehow godly and holy to, to you know, live a life without joy, without celebration, without fun. 
right? I mean, oftentimes when we think about really dedicated, holy people, we're thinking about people who, right? You know, they just sit around all day doing nothing and, you know, wearing the drabbiest clothes they can and eating as little food as possible. And That's not the point. Asceticism, right? That's not godliness. We're supposed to partake of God's good gifts with thanksgiving. We are supposed to enjoy good food. We are supposed to celebrate. We are supposed to rejoice. Okay? Fasting is not twisting God's arm to do something for you. I can go to God and ask for things because He's my Father. And He's my Father because I'm in Christ. I'm adopted into His family through Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done. God's not going to answer my prayers because I fasted for a week or two weeks or three. It doesn't, we can't twist God's arm. And of course, all of this, right, should be done with the bigger picture in mind. John Piper, in reference to this passage, he said, we need a fast with new wineskins. We need a fast with new wineskins. We need a fast in a way that is, that is fitting with the fact that Jesus has come and our salvation has been accomplished. Right? And we know, we're guaranteed, He's coming again. He's coming again. How does it help? Right? It helps, obviously, one big thing I haven't mentioned yet is just, it's just simply time. Right? Okay, I'm hungry. What I would normally do is I'd go buy some food, I'd go prepare some food, and then I'd spend some time eating. Well, instead of doing that, this gives me the opportunity to say, okay, today I'm going to spend a little bit of time over lunch reading my Bible. I'm going to spend some time praying. And some extra time with God, some time in His Word and in prayer that I wouldn't have otherwise had. But it's also, as we've said, a reminder when we feel that hunger. Jesus, I want to want what I should want as much as I want food right now. I want to feel a hunger for your presence and for your return. Our lives, brothers and sisters, should be marked by joy. It should be marked by joy. Our Savior has come and He's accomplished our salvation. But we do fast. There is a place for fasting. Okay. I, uh, you know, I, this, this, was a, this was a good week for me because, I, you know, just I'll confess, I, I personally haven't fasted in years. I uh, um, got a little bit disillusioned by a lot of misunderstandings of fasting and you know, some of the very things we've been talking about. It just... It didn't, didn't make sense to me. I didn't understand it really. And, you know, it, it did feel like, oh, I'm trying to twist God's arm. Or, you know, why, why is this more holy to, to not enjoy God's gifts? I don't, I don't understand, right? Um, but I've realized in studying this passage, there's a place for this. There's a big place for this. And friends, think, think, about, think about this analogy Jesus has used. Does it make sense in your own life, right, that your response to the fact that Jesus has come 
is joy. Right? Do you, do you see that analogy of, of, of absolute feasting, absolute celebration, that, that that should define your life, right? Because of what Jesus has done and what he's accomplished. And yet at the same time, to realize as wonderful as everything he's done for me is, there's a far greater future waiting for me. To be with Jesus, right? To depart and be with Jesus is better by far. That's what the Apostle Paul tells us. To live as Christ, to die as gain, because if I, if I die, I'm with Jesus. And if we don't feel that, like we should, fasting, I've come to understand, is a helpful tool for helping move my heart in that direction, helping cultivate a hunger in my heart for Jesus, for his return. We fast with confident hope and expectation because Jesus is coming again. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.